Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously, on Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. So Diane and I walk up there and said, uh, are you okay? What, you know, what happened? Uh, get me out of here. Yeah. I'm like, what? What? Can you, can you tell us what happened, please? You know, we need, to, we need to know what's going on here. I just want to go home. And I got in the truck, locked the door, and then shot Chip four times, and I heard, after he shot, after he heard the shots, I heard Chip yell, go. I'm John Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Just a warning before we get started. This episode contains adult language and themes and probably isn't suitable for children or sensitive listeners. Okay, so straight into our story. 22-year-old Charles Chip Flynn bled to death after being shot in the upper right chest in an orange grove in Mims during the first hours of April 4th, 1989. His on-again, off-again girlfriend, Kim Halleck, managed to escape, and she tells police what transpired. They don't record Kim's initial statement, however, which, remember last episode, retired Sergeant Diane Clark said was irregular. Here is CBS journalist Erin Moriarty of 48 Hours. One important thing to remember is that the first case interview with Kim Halleck wasn't the first time she talked to the police. There's a whole section where she talked to those officers um, that was not recorded, so we have no idea what she said. So detectives don't record her, which is odd, and they don't question something that jumped out at me right away, and others who have examined this case closely. Jotting down all the times that Kim mentions to the police and then checking with the folks over at CBS 48 Hours to make sure I have the same numbers, here is Kim's timeline. Chip and Kim leave her house at 11.05 p.m., stop at a store, and go to Holder Park. Between 11.25 and 11.35, Kim says a sheriff's car drives through the park and flashes his lights all around. Within 15 minutes, they have the first encounter with the black assailant, according to Kim. Between 11.50 and 11.55, Chip gets out of the truck to relieve himself, and the robbery-slash-kidnapping starts. They arrive at the Orange Grove, by 12.10 a.m., and immediately all hell breaks loose and Kim escapes. The problem is that she doesn't knock on David Stroop's trailer door until after 1 a.m., and 911 is not called until 1.11, nearly a full hour after she says Chip was shot. Even if we give Kim the benefit of the doubt and give her an additional, say, 20-minute leeway in her account, then there are 40 unaccounted for minutes. Stroop's trailer was between two and three miles from the Orange Grove. And remember, the medical examiner did testify that Chip would have likely survived his wound had he been attended to sooner. So anyway, he stopped breathing again for a second time right as the ambulance pulled up. And Diane resuscitated him again, but, he, you know, 
by that time, he was, his lungs were so full of fluid and everything, I'm sure. It's a shame, though, because had they gotten there like 10 minutes earlier, he probably would have been saved. That was former Brevard Sheriff's Deputy Mark Rixey, who was the first on the scene with his supervisor, Sergeant Diane Clark. Now, shortly after Chip is taken away in the ambulance, someone from Jess Parish Hospital calls the Titusville Police Department and speaks with Officer Mike Boyle. According to court documents, someone had called the hospital with reference to Chip Flynn and threatened to go down to the hospital and, quote, finish the job. So sheriff's vehicles were sent to the hospital as a precaution, even though Boyle, and anyone with a brain really, doubted someone would stop to use the phone and continue a threat if they were already fleeing a scene. I mean, think about it. The killer could have, quote, finished the job in the orange grove. Kim had fled and Chip was lying there gravely wounded. No one else was apparently around and the cops wouldn't arrive for another hour and a half. And what killer is going to give advanced warning that they are planning on finishing the job? Personally, I think the missing 40 minutes and the phone call are connected, but I'll get into that later. I asked Mark Rixey about that phone call. Any opinion, Mark, on, on this phone call? Somebody supposedly calls the hospital and says, we're going to go and finish the job? Oh, absolutely. That's a bunch of, you know, if you can't tell, somebody did that on Kim's behalf. You know, she had all this time. It's just a shame we didn't have a caller ID back then, you know. But, you know, that, that was definitely, nobody does that. Nobody does that, you know. You might see that type of activity if it was a witness in a trial you wanted to make sure they shut up or something like that. But a random carjacking, nobody's going to call the hospital and say, oh, we're going to finish the job now. Oh, by the way, this is a black guy. So the report says a black guy called the hospital. I don't know if that means he identified himself as a black man or if the person who took the call simply assumed the race. Stressed out? Need a little self-care at home? CBD Healthcare Company's skincare products deliver soothing relief and relaxation. Treat yourself. You deserve it. The CBD and CBD Healthcare Company's world-class formulated skincare products enhances the effectiveness of your typical skincare regimen. Reduce the signs of wrinkles. Remove dead skin cells and impurities. Bring your skin to a healthy and radiant state. Self-care. Skincare at home. Visit CBDHealthCareCompany.com. Skincare products made in the USA. Murder on the Space Coast fans can save 20% off your order. Use promo code PODCAST at checkout. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, eventually investigators get around to recording Kim Halleck's statement. She gives her account of the night, and even though she says the night was dark and was a blur, and she didn't get a real good look at the assailant, she is still able to give the police a pretty good description of Chip's killer. So, let's back up a little bit. Can you describe this black male to me? Approximately, uh, how tall was he? Between 5'8 and about 6'4". Mm-hmm. How much did he weigh, could you tell? It's about 180. 
jacket on, a dark heavy jacket, Remember what possibly color? green, a real dull green, blue jeans, and big heavy boots, like working boots, I'm not sure about them. But Could you tell what color they were? No. Big chest, big arms, thick. She also says he was wearing a big green army style jacket on that very warm night, and heavy work boots. Remember those little nuggets for later, especially the big heavy work boots. So as Kim is giving her recorded statement, other investigators and technicians are poring over the two crime scenes. One crew is in Holder Park, where the abduction started, and another crew is in the Orange Grove, where Chip was shot. What they find in the park is as important as what they don't find. Remember, Kim tells police that the black assailant accidentally fired his gun into the ground as he was tying Chip's hands behind his back with a shoestring. Well... No evidence of a gunshot is found. No casings, no bullets, nothing. And they did check with metal detectors. They do, however, recover Chip's wallet, which is empty except for an ID card and two photos of Kim. And they find footprints. Now, it's a baseball field. It's a local park with houses all around. People walk through the park and, well, they leave footprints. And someone from the sheriff's office immediately calls in a dog handler by the name of Odell Kaiser. Now, if you remember from previous seasons of Murder on the Space Coast, Brevard was notorious for using a crooked dog handler by the name of John Preston. He was responsible for helping to convict at least three innocent men of capital crimes, William Dillon, Wilton Dedge, and Juan Ramos. There is also serious doubt about the guilt of Gary Bennett, who was also victimized by the dog handler John Preston, and who's been in prison now for more than 35 years. Now, Preston was run out of town in 1984, but the sheriff's office and state attorney's office kept relying on this junk science of dog tracking. And when I say junk, well, just listen to this. Kaiser and his cronies at the sheriff's office identify what they said was the freshest set of prints in Holder Park. They belong to a set of sneakers, or as they say here in Florida, tennis shoes. Now, the dog is going to get a good whiff of those tracks and follow them to a house in the neighborhood. I'll get to whose house that was in just a second. There are some serious problems with this. Number one, no one ever identified those tracks as belonging to the killer. Number two, according to experts in the field, loose sand is the absolute most difficult place for a dog to follow a scent track because of insects and vegetation and other factors. Number three, the dog is never ever given anything to smell before the track. In other words, If they had an article of the suspect's clothing, then theoretically the dog could pick up that scent and follow it. They skipped that vital step entirely. Lastly, Kim Halleck says the black assailant was wearing heavy work boots. I mean, what the hell? Well, after that little magic trick with the dog as performed, Detective Tom Fair joins the questioning with Kim Halleck, and that's when the work boots all of a sudden begin to morph into tennis shoes. Oh, and by the way, Tom Fair was one of the lead investigators in the William Dillon case. After Dillon was exonerated, Fair was accused by the jailhouse snitch in that case as having told the snitch what to say. Something Fair denied. Cameron, 
uh, in a yes or no fashion, okay, describing his footwear, are you certain of what type of footwear he was wearing, yes or no? Not real certain. So the answer is no. Right. Okay, could he have been wearing tennis shoes? That's possible, isn't it? Yeah, but it seemed like tennis shoes weren't heavy enough for what he was. Okay. Your recollection in describing his footwear is not based on something you visually saw and remember. It's a sound you heard. That is seriously some Jedi Master crap right there, isn't it? These are not the shoes you're looking for. The scene at the Orange Grove is telling as well. Kim told the police that the black assailant had a semi-automatic handgun. The type, according to testimony in this case, that discharges casings of bullets after they've been fired. Well, there are none of those at the Orange Grove. There were no barefoot footprints, and remember, Kim said that she was barefoot. And as we've already mentioned, the tire tracks at the scene did not indicate a speedy getaway, as Kim suggested. Once again, here's former Deputy Mark Rixey. And all these spots she said she heard as she was driving away, there was never any shell casing sound, you know? Now, I seriously doubt this guy is going to go in the pitch black night through an orange grove and pick up all his shell casings, you know? Now, near the end of last episode, you also heard me talk about clothes that were found at the scene. Well, I just discovered that those clothes included Chip's denim jacket and his jeans. Remember, attorney Rob Parker said the clothes were matted down as if people were lying down on them. This could be one of the biggest holes in Kim Halleck's account of that evening. Remember, she told detectives that she placed Chip Flynn's revolver behind his jeans that were rolled up on the bench of the pickup truck. No jeans were found in this truck later on. That can only mean one thing. Chip Flynn must have grabbed his jeans and jacket while diving out of the truck headfirst and shooting his revolver behind his back at the black assailant. No one ever questions Kim about that. And efforts begin that following morning to find a suspect and close out this case. Kim is shown a box with between 60 and 80 mugshots of black men in the area. The usual suspects, if you will. And, well, none of them match. But she is able to tell a sketch artist, well, his nose is like this guy's, and his mouth is like this one here, and his chin, and so on and so on. A sketch is put out and circulated everywhere. Now back to this dog track. The dog, which is not scenting any particular item belonging to any suspect, and following a pair of tennis shoe prints that could belong to absolutely anybody who walked through Halder Park that Monday night, follows this track to a house very near the park. The home belongs to a woman named Celestine Peterkin. She just happens to be the older sister of Crosley and O'Connor Green. Remember, O'Connor was known as one of the area's major players in the crack cocaine arena, and his brother Crosley, fresh out of prison, would deal for him. Both routinely would stay at Celestine's house. And it's fair to say that both brothers were known to the police. Could the dog handler have been steered there in an effort to get the Green brothers off the streets of North Brevard? Or was this simply a case of puppy love? Here is Crosley's attorney, Keith Harrison. Basically, um, what the police did is, based on the, uh, the victim's description of events, this crime started at Holder Park baseball field. And there had been a baseball game there the day before. The dog basically um, started scenting around and scented a set of footprints. Now, these footprints were of tennis shoes, um, and the brand of the tennis shoes were called Wind Street Tennis Shoes. 
And so the dog started following these footprints. There's no indication whose footprints they were, but the dog followed them um, out of the park, across cement, um, and basically stopped at a house that was owned by Crosley's sister, that Crosley's sister lived in. This house had dogs in the yard, in the backyard, and this was essentially the uh, prosecution's argument that the dog had traced Crosley's footsteps to Crosley's sister's house. Now, as it turned out, the, the crime victim who alleged that a black guy kidnapped him had said the black guy was wearing work boots, not tennis shoes, which is what the dog sniffed. Crosley Green doesn't own any work boots. He does own one set of tennis shoes. They were Reeboks. They weren't the Windstar tennis shoe tracks that the dog had, had scented and um, allegedly, you know, um, followed. So we don't know whose scent the dog was following, but there's no evidence it was Crosley Green's. Now maybe it starts to make sense why Tom Fair would push to change Kim Halleck's story about the work boots. According to private investigator Paul Cialino, pinning the crime on O'Connor Green would not only take a drug dealer off the street, but it would also close out a homicide in a very quick and neat way. Listen, this was all about a drug stuff going on down there. I mean, the Greens, uh, Connor especially, was a notorious drug dealer. Listen, they wanted to put this case on Connor in the worst way. The problem was, Connor was in a bar with 60 people that night. They tried to put this case on Connor Green. They couldn't do it. That's who they were focusing on immediately. Not that Connor had any contact with Chip Flynn in any regard, right? Wow. Ever. Yeah. But they don't like Connor. They want to put him away. And they were gonna they'd love to hang a murder on him. Connor was who they were after and when they found out Connor was uh, you know, alibied out, they looked they go, what's that other fucking Crosley up to today? And according to attorney Rob Parker, that sketch would seem to back up Chilino's theory. Now, interestingly enough, O'Connor Green was not in prison at the time or in jail, and the, uh, the sketch looked just like O'Connor. So the following evening, detectives call Kim Halleck back to the precinct. They have a suspect in mind, and they need Kim to identify the man from a photo lineup. You've heard me use the phrase stacked deck before, and well... If there ever was such a thing as a suggestive photo lineup, this was it. Again, here's attorney Keith Harrison. There's the uh, photo lineup, which is unnecessarily suggestive. And what I mean by that is um, it is, a, it is a, a photo array of six photographs in three horizontal columns. And Crosley's picture is the smallest, darkest picture right in the middle of the photo array. And your eyes naturally go to the middle of any sort of, uh, any sort of array of objects. Um, and so he's right in the middle. His photograph, which is different um, because it was a, um, a prison mugshot, is darker and smaller and right in the middle of that photo array. And it's surrounded, essentially, by four pictures of much lighter-skinned African-American men. Um, it was unnecessarily suggestive, and anybody who looks at it... In fact, uh, the prosecutor in this case, um, during a, a, a interview 
um, a news interview said that he wouldn't even use that photo array again. He's right. A few years back, I passed a copy of that photo lineup around the office and I asked a bunch of my coworkers to tell me which photo their eyes were drawn to first. All but one responded with photo number two, Crosley Green. Like Keith said, it's smaller, it's darker, it's right in the middle, and you can't help but to stare at it. It's also the only photo with a bright white background. And Keith was right. In a rare admission, former prosecutor Chris White questions the photo lineup, while, of course, defending the identification of Crosley Alexander Green. Here is White being interviewed by Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours a couple of years ago. Uh, you can't see the guy in the top middle very well at all. Crosley Green's photo is the darkest. Would you do this today? Well, no. No, ideally I would not. Could she, she have picked the wrong person? I don't think she did, you know? Was she unduly influenced? Was she guessing more than she was sure? I couldn't tell you for sure. Let's face it. We're all a little stressed these days. With all the distraction on what we can't do, it's time to do a little self-care at home. CBD Healthcare Company is the source you can depend on for facial, skin care, and muscle relief. Our made-in-the-USA, world-class calming body lotions, recovery creams, and anti-aging serums combine THC-free CBD extract with natural botanicals and known ingredients. CBDHealthCareCompany.com Because taking time for yourself is always a good idea. Murder on the Space Coast fans can save 20% off your order. Use promo code PODCAST at checkout. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now that wasn't the only problem with that photo lineup. Before Kim Halleck was shown the photo lineup, investigators told her their main suspect was one of the six. Now you're not supposed to do that. What that does is it puts undue pressure on the victim, Kim Halleck in this case, to choose one of those pictures. I asked attorney Rob Parker about this. They showed her the photographic lineup. I had the tape of the, of the showing of the photographic lineup. The room was filled. I say filled. There were several law enforcement officers, as well as the victim's, surviving victim's father was in there. And they asked her... They told her the person that did this is in there, so she knew it was in there, and they wanted him to pick, wanted her to pick him out. And so she took a while and ho-hummed around and said, well, I think that's him. No, I'm pretty sure that's him. And she had evidently hit the blue, blue photograph. And the officer who was handling it, and I believe it was Scotty, said, well, that's not good enough. you got to be sure. Are you, are you sure that's him? Well, I'm pretty sure. Well, that, that's just not good enough. And they went through this three or four times, and finally she said, yeah, that's him. As soon as she said, yeah, that's him, they said, you're right, that's him. That's the guy. That's the one we're looking for. Being told she picked the right guy is also a no-no. 
Parker's retelling is spot on. According to the trial testimony, Kim Halleck recounts that lineup and admits to saying she was pretty sure before being prodded several times to make a more pronounced statement. The fact that the photo she chooses looks nothing like her description of the black assailant means nothing. Attorney Keith Harrison. She told the police officers that her and her boyfriend had been parking and had been kidnapped by a black guy who she described as big and muscular, not like a bodybuilder, but big. And um, his hair was a, um, um, a curly, like permanent, greasy, essentially describing um, a big black man with a jerry curl. Mm. Um, she picks um, that later that night, um, she picks uh, Crosley Green, who is slight of build, and short-cropped hair out of a photo lineup. Crosley had always kept his hair short, you know? Um, he had the, you know, Crosley's hair has always been short his entire life. That's always the way he's kept it, very closely cropped to his head, um, which, you know, has been, you know, historically uh, throughout, throughout the decades, a pretty consistently popular hairstyle for African-American men. Um, and so he's always kept his hair that way. Um, he's never had a jerry curl, and he is very slight of build. I mean, you would call Crosby skinny. I mean, he's a skinny guy. Right. Um, he's anything, you know, he's the furthest away from the, from the description of the alleged, you know, kidnapper. Mm. Um, the only thing that is similar between the, um, the description of the alleged kidnapper and Crosby Green is that they were both black. Lastly, regarding the photo lineup, somehow the box of 60 to 80 African-American mugshots that Kim went through in helping a sketch artist do his thing went missing shortly thereafter. I'm not sure exactly how this happens in a law enforcement office, especially if those mugs were of the usual suspects, but it did. It makes you wonder if Crosley Green's photograph was among them and Kim Halleck bypassed it, a fact that would not look good for prosecutors. Remember, the 911 recording also went missing right away. By that Friday morning, just a few days after Chip Flynn was killed, everyone in Brevard County woke up to a front-page story and photograph in their Florida Today newspaper announcing the sheriff's office had identified the slaying suspect and issued a nationwide alert. His name was Crosley Green. Interestingly enough, the arrest warrant was signed by none other than Judge Dean Moxley. Remember him? He was the main prosecutor in all those wrongful conviction cases featured in Season 2 of Murder on the Space Coast. His right-hand man for those cases was now the chief prosecutor, Chris White. Now, it's not very clear whether Crosley left town when he heard that he was wanted for murder, or if he went about his daily business undetected. Some people said he was with his cousins in North Carolina. Regardless, the search comes to an end on June 8, 1989, when Crosley Green is brought in for questioning. Here is Tom Fair asking Crosley if he'd like to speak with him. You've been a hard fellow to find. Have I? Yeah. How? Well, they were looking for They couldn't have been looking for me. Well, what I would like to do is to get you through your rights, knowing that you can stop at any time before we get into any discussion. So can we do that? Can we, uh... Will you talk with us up until the point in time where you uh, choose to stop? 
I want to see what, what I'm charged with. And I okay. Can say, you know? All right, sir. Well, what we have here is a warrant for your arrest. It's the state of Florida versus Crosley Alexander Green. In the name of the state of Florida, to all and singular the sheriffs of this state, you are commanded to arrest Crosley Alexander Green, who is a black male, approximately 5 feet 11 inches tall, approximately 170 pounds, with the date of birth of 09-11 of 57, whom is reasonably believed from the attached affidavit to have committed in Brevard County, Florida, the offense of number one, robbery, number two, kidnapping, number three, murder a copy of which is attached hereto and made a part hereof, contrary to section 812.13, 787.01, and chapter 782.04 of the Florida statutes and against the peace and dignity of the state of Florida. Now, this warrant was written uh, in April and it was signed and sealed on the sixth day of April 1989 by uh, John D. Moxley, who is uh, one of our circuit court judges. Well, let me go ahead and serve this on you at this time. Scotty, why don't you go ahead and do that? And essentially, that's why you have been arrested, Mr. Green, and that's what we need to speak to you about. And charges, you just made some charges up to me. Robbery, kidnapping, and murder. All right, correct me if I'm wrong. Right before you read the charge, you was a little lying. You said something about, uh, I've been accused. Yes, sir. Oh, somebody said I'm di I'm yes, I did this That's matter. exactly right, and that's why we need to talk to you. We know that there's two sides to every story, and before we uh, send a guy to jail or something like that, we at least offer him one jail. Yeah, you're arrested. So I'm going to jail. This is, what you, this is what you're saying. I'm going to jail. Yes, sir. You taking me to jail? Yes, sir. You taking me to jail or something? I said that's what I did. That's why we got the warrant. That's why we're speaking to you now. If you want to speak to us, there's two sides to every story. We don't know yours. We haven't. You're right. You're right. But bearing in mind now, Mr. Green, the charges that I just read to you, mm -hmm. getting back to your rights, there's one more question. Knowing these rights, you do or you, you do not wish to speak to us at this time about these charges. Well, if I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to choose no, I, I, would, I would not like to speak to y'all. I would take it my way. Okay. You know, You're certain. Because, uh, yes, I think okay. I am. Because, yeah, y'all think me in jail or something, I ain't going to do it. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, the state builds its case against Crosley Green. But here, there is a separate victim a victim who was terrorized, a victim who was kidnapped and removed to another location where the murder occurred, a victim who was also robbed. At that time, uh, Chris came back in and he asked me what I was going to help. I told him I didn't know. And he told me that if I didn't, that they can take the kids, put them in foster care, and she hadn't been sentenced yet. He told me that they could give her 20 to life on her charges if I didn't. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, 
Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.